Sometimes studying the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing. Grounded in Truth with Janet Dennison will help you learn to study, understand, and apply God's Word to your daily life. His Word is true. And guess what? It's for everyone. So thanks for joining us today as we dive into Scripture together. Welcome to Lesson 24. It's a lesson on Christian unity, which has always been an issue in the church, always will be an issue in the church, and it's certainly an issue that Paul had to deal with in all of his churches. So it's an important topic, and we're gonna look at it from chapter 14 of Romans all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. I read a 2019 Christian Post article that gave reasons for why people leave the church. The first one was, I just got out of the habit. The second, I just never went back after high school. The third, I didn't like the institutional church. Four, somebody hurt me at church. Five, I couldn't find a church that met my needs. Next, I had a need and the church didn't meet it. Finally, I never felt connected to the church. Before we move to the next, I want you to look at the last three or consider the last three. I couldn't find a church that met my needs. I had a need the church didn't meet. I never felt connected to the church. I think a lot of times these days, people go to look for a church for reasons that probably aren't the best theology. Which church do I like the best? Which church is most like me? Which church is most comfortable for me to be in? I think those are all really important considerations, but not the most important consideration. One of the great things in walking as a Christian through this world is learning to ask the right questions of God. And when you're looking for a church or looking to belong to a church somewhere and find a family that you feel like you're supposed to be part of, the question is really not who's going to meet my needs nearly as much as it is, okay, Lord, which church do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to plant my life? What is the body of Christ that needs my gifts? That question is the biblical approach to choosing a church. And if we did that, I think we would have a different mentality about churches and what they're supposed to be. A church is a place where we're supposed to serve, and that's always the most important consideration when you're looking for a church. There was a 2018 Fox News report that was talking about the same thing. People gave these reasons why they had left the church. They said they tell people the Bible is the basis for Christianity instead of Jesus. They believe suffering disproves God's existence. They had a bad church experience earlier in their life. They said we're bad at making people feel welcome. And they said we made the church, uh, the ideas ecclesia, the body of Christ, about a building and not Jesus. I would like to look at the first one on that list. It says we tell people the Bible is the basis of Christianity instead of Jesus. Which one is it? Absolutely. 
both the Bible and Jesus are the basis for our faith. They are interlinked, inspired. Jesus saves. How do we know that? Because of the Bible, because his word tells us that. Again, I go back to that profound truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Which part of that verse isn't truth? It's important that we make Jesus the foundation of our faith and the foundation of our churches. But it's also important that our churches line up with the Bible. It's the reason we have God's Word, is so that we can know what theology is. And that's why Paul wrote his letter to Rome, so that they would have a strong, systematic theology of what to believe. And in the lesson today, we'll see a lot of what can cause disunity in the church is a disagreement over what we think the Bible says. Most of the time, if our churches make the evening news, it's because we are in disagreement with another church about what is the right thing. So let's look at what Paul says, and we need to look at this carefully because I believe going forward, especially in the churches in the United States, this is going to, going to become an increasingly important uh, measure of unity. And so let's look at how we're supposed to be unified as Christians and why. Paul was in the business of establishing and growing and building these bodies of Christ. For 20 years, he'd given his life to that service. But Paul taught that the best way to grow the church, the body of Christ, was to help people grow spiritually. That is the number one reason a church exists. We exist to help people know God and to know his word. So when Paul spoke about ecclesia, he meant God's people. When he talks about the church in this passage, he's not speaking about a building. Those actually weren't even allowed until after Constantine uh, gave them permission in 313, I think it was, A.D., we are a body of Christ. We are a church was a group of people who lived for the sake of their local fellowship in order to share God's word with others. So today's passages discuss some of the reasons that these groups of people that were the church, the individual churches, had disputes or, or had problems, and it was their witness to the city that was damaged as a result, and Paul wanted them to recognize it and to learn how to determine how to be unified. Paul's first words are absolutely essential. To be honest, I could do an entire 30 minutes on this one verse if I could, but it is the measure of everything he's about to say in the following passages we'll look at. Paul's first words are, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That's chapter 14, verse 1. 
We're to accept the one whose faith is weak. That doesn't mean that they're choosing to be weak in the faith and being apathetic about it, although it could be applied that way as well. What Paul is really intending to say is accept those that are new to the faith, that haven't had a chance to grow strong. Sometimes we think the Bible says something, but understand Paul and anyone in the early first century church never in their wildest imagination could assume that somebody thought this verse was giving permission for a person not to grow in their faith. And so Paul wouldn't even have felt like he had to say that. Instead, he says, except the one whose faith is weak, new, picture a baby bird who can barely struggle there on the ground, but who will one day fly. That's this picture of the word weak, except one whose faith is just beginning, who hasn't had the chance yet to grow. And don't quarrel with them over disputable matters. Don't quarrel with them if you see them do a behavior that's a product of their immature faith. Don't quarrel with them over it. Accept them. Find a way to nurture them to a place of understanding the truth. But the key to this verse is found in the last two words, disputable matters. And that's why I wanted to argue with that first statement of why people leave a church, because they want to make the Bible the Lord instead of the Lord. I don't think that's really their dispute. We live in a culture here in America that is disputing, the churches are disputing over some issues that are not disputable matters. How do we know what a disputable matter is? because of God's word, the way God's word is laid out. And it's not just a chapter or two, or even a few verses or two. When you think about things your church has disputed over, what in that is something that covers the entirety of scripture? For example, we've been pastoring a long time. When we started pastoring 30 something years ago, the disputes tended to be over things like how a person should dress for church on Sunday or uh, which Bible or version of the Bible we should use and shouldn't use. That's not a, that's not a disputable matter because Bibles didn't even exist. Versions of scripture didn't even exist in that day. Uh, I like a version of the Bible that doesn't paraphrase it. But that's why I always teach from NIV or ESV, because that is a direct translation from experts of the most ancient documents that we have. And so I like those two versions myself to teach from or to study from. But a disputable matter is something that the Bible does not address specifically. So nowadays, we dispute over music. Should we stay with the hymns? I will tell you, I love the hymns of the faith. A hymnal is put together by people who know the history 
and the theology of those words. And they make certain that those words are true to scripture. And that was really the intent of having hymnals in the first place, so that we would sing praise worship that was accurate with scripture. I love singing hymns. I also love singing the choruses, but I put that same standard to that music that I do to the hymn. Which one is correct? That depends on the person singing it and if they're singing words or if they're singing worship to God. How does God measure our worship? It's not whether we're singing a hymn or a praise chorus. It is whether we're singing those words to him. That's the scriptural truth of worship. So a disputable matter, women as deacons. We'll talk about that at the end uh, when we do chapter 16. So I'll save it for that, but let's just cover this now. There were women deacons in the scriptures. What other things have we disputed over? Right now, probably the most potent and divisive issue is the acceptance of gender neutral people or those who identify as a different gender than they were born um, or say they were born that way. That will be a continued dispute. Is it a disputable matter? I will sit here on the authority of scripture and tell you that I do not think so. In theology, when something is a sin in Genesis, and it remains a sin throughout Scripture all the way to Revelation. It is not considered a disputable matter of the faith. It is considered truth because it is crossed centuries of time. It's crossed both covenants. It's been truth to the Old Testament leadership, and it was truth to the New Testament leadership. So it is truth. And so there are some issues the church is disputing over now that aren't a disputable matter. That's how you determine it. Trust the theologians. Trust those that have given themselves to a strong walk with the Lord in his word. Also trust the fact that we're not going to know a theology and that the rest of Christian history was somehow not privy to. It's not new theology should always be suspect. I'll put it that way. Paul taught systematic theology. It's one of the reasons I wanted to teach the book of Romans. Paul, what Paul taught was a systematic theology. And Paul makes no bones about the particular issue that is most being disputed in churches today and is literally fracturing whole denominations. Okay. I had to say that. Thank you for giving me that permission. But I want you, if I teach you, I want you to be able to stand firm in the truth and on the truth and present a unified front. In other words, witness to people on these important issues that are not disputable matters. Remember, people didn't own a Bible in the first century. They weren't privy to opening a study Bible and reading great theology and great notes about God's Word. And so there needed to be an even greater ability to accept and give them time to grow. We 
really are without excuse in our culture today. There really is no one who can't find a study Bible and know what God's word means. And so we can, to be honest, we have a much higher level of accountability for our behavior than the Christians in the first century did. The Jewish and Gentile believers had grown up with completely different cultures. They had different holidays, different customs, different celebrations, and they most certainly had different habits. Most of what Paul is talking about today is along those lines. How do you blend with people who celebrate life, who live their lives very differently than you do? Because we're all one body of Christ. And so that's really the lesson of this chapter today. In the first century, the Jewish diet was much different than the Gentiles. Uh, if you look back at the laws of Leviticus, there were very specific ways that meat was supposed to be killed, cleaned, and prepared. And in the Gentile culture, it was not even a thought or an issue. There was no ceremonial rules about that. In fact, in the Gentile culture, if you went to a market in Ephesus or Corinth, uh, you would go to the meat market and often not know where that meat had come from or how it had been prepared. The Gentiles often had temples in these cities, major cities like Rome, for example, that used a portion of meat as a sacrificial offering to a pagan god. Then they would take the rest of the animal down and provide it to the market to be sold. And that's how they made their money. They sold a certain portion to pagan worship and gave the rest of it to the market. So a Jewish person was afraid to go to the market and buy a piece of meat because what if that piece of meat had actually been associated with pagan worship? What if that piece of meat hadn't been drained of the blood like the Levitical laws had instructed? And that's why Paul says what he's about to say in 14, two to three. He said, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Here's the key. For God has accepted them. Remember Acts chapter 10 when Peter was in Joppa and in a vision he saw the sheet being lowered and the animals were on there and some were unclean and God lowered it three times, which in theology is a complete total number. It was God saying, no, Peter, this is complete and, and total truth. Nothing is unclean that I call clean. And so Peter has a vision in the New Testament that modifies the laws of the Old Covenant. Already the laws of how to be right with God had been modified. The Jewish people had struggled to modify some of these other laws. So there were those that ate only vegetables because they didn't know where that meat had come from. And you invited them to dinner at your house and they didn't eat the main course. And the person serving it 
might have felt offended because that person only wanted to eat vegetables. Well, it was a point of uncomfort in the church. Paul says, don't judge them. Let them be acceptable to God. If God has accepted their behavior, which he did in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius later, then God has accepted them. Don't you refuse to be their friend, refuse to go to their home because they're serving meat you're skeptical of. He says, if God's accepted them, we should too. Paul goes on to say, who are you to judge someone else's servant? He uses the word diakonos, which is the word we derive deacon from, servant. It's not the same word that was used earlier in Romans when he used the word doulos, which meant slave. He said, who are you to judge someone else's servant? That's a person in the house who maybe prepared that meal for you. They said, to their own master, servants stand or fall. It is up to the person in the house to instruct their servants what to cook and how to cook it. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Paul's comparing a person's diet like we were judging a person's servant. Like you could walk into the home of someone else and say, you can't fix it that way. You can't cook that food. We would never, that was never, especially in first century hospitality, even an option. So the servant doesn't answer to anyone, only to the one he or she serves. Paul's probably now going to refer to the various holiday celebrations, the way people dressed. Uh, it could be many things, but it's probably the holidays that were so different. It would be like Gentile holidays and Jewish holidays. And he goes on to say, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be the point, fully convinced in their own mind. Is it okay to do something? I always look at somebody and say, well, when you prayed about it, what did God tell you? You should be fully convinced in your own mind, and your own mind should be fully guided by the Word of God. And so whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. If they have prayed about it, if they have offered that food as a thanksgiving celebration to God, it's good. If God's good with it, it's good. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. If you're used to highlighting or underlining phrases in your Bible, there's one to underline. None of us lives for ourselves alone. It's not about how something makes you feel. It's about the truth. It's about the other person. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Paul is saying, Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. There is never a moment in your life, now or after you die, that you won't know Jesus as your Lord. And so each of us have an influence with one another. Our lives should always be lived as a witness to other people so that when people see us, they know that person belongs to the Lord. 
Paul says, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then who judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with a contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us, another phrase to underline, each of us will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. I taught not too long ago that if we look around at other people, we will not know what it is God wants for our life. We in many ways have lost the uniqueness that God has created for us in trying to belong to a group. Remember your thumbprint. You can be in any group. Remember, you're always completely unique and your walk with the Lord has to be biblically based, but it will look different than the person sitting next to you. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Let's just stop deciding who we think gets it right and who we think doesn't. Why? Because it's our job instead to make up your mind, as Paul says, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Don't have a an attitude or an opinion on a disputable matter that causes someone trying to grow, somebody on that road of sanctification to trip over something. Paul says, I am convinced. I love that phrase. I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus. That's how you're supposed to be convinced of something because the Lord has fully persuaded you that nothing is unclean in itself. This is Paul, the most emancipated Jewish person there. The thing he got slandered for the most was the way he had relaxed his Jewish laws. He says, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. There's a lot to be said on that topic, but the bottom line is your life, your witness, what you eat and drink or don't eat and don't drink needs to be because you are fully convinced that is the diet God has called you to. That's the measure from God's word, from Paul's words. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God... That means the place where God rules and reigns is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your witness is not about what you eat and drink. It is instead God rules in your life because you live a righteous life, a life that has peace and joy, and you walk in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ, Paul says, in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. If this, if you could take 14, 16, and 18, that is the answer to the question, what should my Christian life look like? 
read again, study, reread chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. That's what your Christian life is supposed to look like. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. This is Paul saying, what's most important for your life? That you can help other people grow towards faith in Christ, grow in their knowledge of him. Don't do anything in your life that trips up other people who are looking to you as an example or an influence. Back when the church met in the 50s and 60s, one of the biggest issues for local churches had to do with smoking and drinking. Those were the big issues of that day in the 50s and 60s. They didn't want cigarettes on their, their church property. Well, that wasn't exactly a disputable matter, but they made it one. Because nowhere in scripture does it say that you can balance things like that because of secondhand smoke being harmful to your neighbor. I think that's where Paul would go with that issue. There was an issue whether somebody could drink wine or not drink wine. The Bible obviously teaches that people drink wine in scripture. Where's Paul's point of view in that? Uh, Paul drank wine. I don't drink wine because I was the Baptist preacher's wife. And for some people, it might have hurt them to see me drinking wine. So that's an easy thing for me to just not worry about. What we wear is important, but can a man worship if he's not wearing a coat and tie? Absolutely. Uh, the point is, is that you come with a heart that's aligned with God. Uh, at our little chapel we preach at now, we've gone from being completely dressed up to being very comfortable, and I don't worship God any less because I'm not dressed up. The church denominations often had, in the 50s and 60s, a certain status associated with them, and sometimes that was a contentious issue. None of that, all of that would be completely answered in scripture. Evangelism was always considered the church's highest priority back in the 50s and 60s. And attending church was considered the most respectable thing you could do on a Sunday morning. Church attendance was also the very highest in our country in the 50s and 60s. And today's church, do we tolerate certain things or not? Uh, do we judge certain things or not? Uh, is it about personal connection or is it about praise and teaching of God's word? Is it about how good the programs are or is it about whether or not God's called you to be at another church in order to build it up? Denominational lines have faded in the last 15, 20 years in ways that it's sometimes hard to even pull up in a church parking lot and know what that denomination is if they have a denomination. The standards for attendance have softened. You don't have to go every week to be considered as 
as righteous. I, we go every week because we think that's what God wants us to do and told us to do. I think the Bible tells us to go every week. So we're also more focused on people's feelings. Now, let me back that up. I want to rephrase that. We're to worship God every week in a unique, quiet, wonderful way. I don't necessarily know that requires walking in a building every week, but we do need to give ourselves over to a time of worship for God every week. Are we more, more focused on people's feelings and, and their likes and dislikes or than we are God's likes and dislikes? Churches are trying to be less dogmatic which means less rigid about what they believe and more accepting of what others feel like they want to believe. We're less likely today to hear a sermon on hell, for instance, and the fact that it is a reality. And we're less likely to hear a sermon on biblical marriage uh, because pastors are afraid of running off people or offending people in the pews. Church attendance is in decline in our culture today. I leave all of that with you. What's disputable, what's not? I think the Bible makes those things clear. What are disputable matters? Don't argue over those. If it is a disputable matter, argue within the walls of your church. Whatever you believe about these things, Paul says, Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Can I say that again? You are blessed when you don't condemn yourself by what you approve. Please um, take that one to heart right now. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We can't tolerate sin. Neither can we tolerate judgmental people who are judging things not based on God's word, who are arguing over things that are disputable matters that the Bible doesn't make clear. All of that would be considered a sin. So we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Let me put it this way to us today. Those of you who are mature in the faith need to bear with the mistakes made by people who haven't yet had time to grow or given themselves the priority of growing in the Lord. Why? Because we're not living this life to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The reason I teach Bible is because I believe it is absolutely the encouragement and the truth that the way we are supposed to endure through this life is through the framework of God's word. 
So Paul's definition of Christian unity is chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is Paul once again saying, Jewish people don't condemn your Gentile brothers because this was God's plan. Mature Christians don't condemn those who in your eyes seem less mature. It was God's plan that all would be saved. So Paul's quoted from 2 Samuel, Psalms, and Isaiah. As it is written, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. To him, the Gentiles will hope. Paul goes back from his Jewish heritage, from 2 Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, and he tells the church in Rome, especially the Jewish nation, the Jewish believers, it was always God's plan to include the Gentiles, always, based on the truth of Scripture. And then he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 17, Jesus was in the garden praying for all of his followers, praying that God would bless them in the future. And he said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus, knowing he was about to die, praying a final prayer to his Holy Father, prayed that we would be unified, just like Jesus and God were unified. How important is it that we take that as our definition and our ministry and our witness to the world today? I'll see you next time. everyone. Thanks for listening to the Grounded in Truth podcast. If you would like to receive our studies in your inbox each week, you can subscribe at foundationswithjanet.org. I would love to help you study God's Word. Each week, I talk about how to apply Scripture to your daily lives so that you can live a life that God is able to bless. I know you will be encouraged as you build your life on the solid foundation of God's Word. Again, to subscribe, just go to foundationswithjanet.org. And I'll see you there.